Thank you, Miss Dawn, and thank you, choir, for leading us so well every Sunday to sing true things of God so that we can turn our hearts toward Him. I told them last week. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if anyone else felt this way, but I um, just sensed a particular movement of the Spirit last week during our worship service, and um, I just thank them for how they set the table so well every week. Um, as we turn our gaze now to the Word of God. I know that in your bulletin it says um, the name of the sermon, but that is actually not the sermon that I'm going to be preaching today, uh, which means that the stuff that is on the back of your bulletin insert, that's just free. So you can keep that, no charge. I would ask you to turn to Psalm 65. This week, um, the Lord used Psalm 65 um, very powerfully in my life, and so what I hope to do in the next few moments is just to share with you some of the encouragements that the Lord uh, shared with me, um, but, but because... Uh, the comments that I'm about to make are not quite as prepared as I normally would be. I would just ask that right now, as, we, as we're about to read God's Word, uh, that we would just pray that God would, um, uh, would say to us through His Word what He desires us to hear. So would you pray with me? God, we come to you today as needy people. Um, while we are thankful in a country like this for our independence, we confess to you our dependence upon your Holy Spirit to minister any good this morning. We confess to you, God, that no good will come today unless you bring it. We confess to you today that our efforts at doing ministry in our community and to the nations and singing songs about you and, and reading your word, all of it will come to nothing unless you do a work. So we confess our dependence upon you, God. And I confess my dependence upon you right now. I ask that your Holy Spirit would preach a better sermon than I can. And Lord, I pray that as your word speaks to us, you would give us open hearts, ready to receive the things that we need to hear and to apply and to believe. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you've been able to make your way to Psalm 65. And it begins this way. I'll read through the psalm, and we'll come back to verse 1 and, um, and reflect on what it says. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And, you, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer. To you shall all flesh come, 
When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas." The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges and softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Friends, there are many different kinds of psalms. There are songs of, of, of David just lamenting to God and just crying out to Him in the midst of hurt. And we can see ourselves many times in these kinds of, of psalms when we know that we have been in a place much like David. Maybe we have not been pursued by Saul. Maybe Saul has not tried to throw a spear and pin us to the wall, but we have all been in a place of despair. And out of that, we see David cry out to God. We see a very human response to the world that we live in. And these can be comforting to us in different times in our lives. There are other psalms like this one, however, that tell us truth about God. And this psalm, Psalm 65, is particularly unique in my mind because it, it tells us truths about God and then it models for us how we should respond from those truths. In other words, there is nothing true about God that does not touch down in our lives. Everything that is true in the scriptures has an outlet, has an application, has something that we ought to do because of that truth. And this is why sometimes when people say things like, oh, I don't need all that theology, just give me Jesus. No, you, you need that theology. You need what is true about God because knowing what is true about God is what shapes us and forms us to be who we need to be in response of the reality of Yahweh, of God. And it says this here in verse 1. It begins with this praise, and we should remember that the Psalms, the Psalms is a book of praises. I've, I've said to you before, there are some denominations, there are some Christian denominations that don't even sing hymns. They think that we're a contemporary church because we sing hymns, right? That the, there are churches that simply put the psalms to music and sing the psalms because the psalms is a songbook. It is a book of praise to God. Well, why does David here in Psalm 65 think that we should praise God? He says this in verse 1, Praise is due you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. 
David is overwhelmed with the reality of who God is, with the truths that we just read about him. And it reminds us of this, of this truth that we all worship something. Everyone is a worshiper. Because the image of God, the Imago Dei, has been stamped onto our lives, we come out of the womb ready to give praise to something, ready to serve something, ready to worship something. David Foster Wallace, of course, in 2005 when he was giving his commencement speech to Kenyon College, he he said these words. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everyone worships something. And he goes on, if I can paraphrase him, to say the trick, the trick is to find the thing to worship that won't consume you, that won't eat you alive. And some people worship a relationship and that relationship ends up consuming them and and crashing and burning. And some people worship a, a substance or a drug and that drug, of course, just has a corrosive effect and it eats them and consumes them. And Some people worship and serve a job and that job, they, they turn into a workaholic perhaps because of this worship of their work and that job ends up consuming them. But God, the God of the Bible, is the only one that we can direct our praise to. And praising Him and worshiping Him will actually be good for us because that is what we were created to do. All of life is either worship directed toward the right object, God, or worship twisted and directed toward something that will not satisfy, that will not fulfill us. It says this in, in Romans 6, Uh, If I could just read a verse really quick, it says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. He He says basically here that you are either a slave of sin or a slave of the good master. We are all slaves to something. The question is, is the master that we have a kind and generous and good master who lives for our good, or are we still enslaved to the things that we chased after before Christ? Jesus is the only good master, and his yoke is easy. To be, to be enslaved by him, if we can use that language, to put our head around his yoke. It says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Dane Ortland, in the book that I handed out to you all, uh, Gentle and Lowly, he, he asked this question, how could it be that putting something on, that putting on a yoke could lighten you? And he said it, it, does, it, it does it like a life jacket does in the, in, the, in the lake or in the ocean. No one says, get this burden off of me. When your boat capsizes and you have a life jacket on. That is what Christ does in the life of the believer. And praise is due him because he is the only master who will not crush us. He is the master who exists for our good. So friends, our lives will only make sense when our worship is directed toward him. And as long as our worship is directed toward anything else, we will find ourselves burned out, unsatisfied, and wrecked, seeking what it is that might make us whole. He gives in verse 2 one other reason why we can praise him. Why is praise directed toward this God? Because he is the God. Verse 2, you see this? Oh, you who hear prayer. It says, our God is a God who hears 
prayers. Why should that be? Why should it be? Now, now, in our very casual culture, we tend to think, well, of course, me and God, we're good buddies, right? We're tight. God hears my prayers, yeah. I, it's Miranda Lambert, I know Jesus and he drinks wine and I bet we get along just fine. We're just buddy-buddy, you know. Our culture comes to God in such a casual attitude that we miss the fact that, friends, we have no business being heard by this God. There is no reason that he should hear our prayers. We are dirty sinners that he brought forth from the dust and we rebelled against him. We says, I don't like you. I want to go my own way. And this is a holy God in whose presence can be no dirt, no filth, and we're full of it. Why should it be that this God would allow us, would allow for our prayers to be heard? It's because of his great love for us in Christ in Christ, the veil was torn. You remember that from the, from the Gospel of John that we will consider later in the, in the coming months, I'm sure, whenever we get there in the Gospel of John. If I can keep taking these little detours into, into the Psalms, if I can keep from doing that. That the veil, which was like three feet thick, the veil in the temple that separated the, the Holy of Holies from everybody else, that thing was, was rent. It was torn from top to bottom. In other words, because of what Christ has done, anybody can go in and hear God, and, and, and be heard by God. He will hear your cry for mercy. He will accept you. He will accept you not because of your good works, but because of the good works that Jesus has done on your behalf. Oh God, who hears prayer. We should not expect to have our prayers heard by this holy God. But yet because of his love for us, he turns his ear towards sinners like us. And it is good for us that he does that. To you, he says, to you all flesh shall come. But before that, I want to direct your attention to something I recall from uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 reminds us in verse 20, um, uh, 26, says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes. That means he goes between us and God. The Spirit mediates. He's like a, like a defense attorney between us and the, and the judge or the jury. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. That means, friends, that even when you don't know what to pray for, you just you bear your heart before God and you can expect that the Spirit knows what you ought to be praying for and He whispers that in the ear of the Father on your behalf. That is the love that God has for you. That is the love that God has for us. He tore the veil and he goes in on our behalf to pray for us what we ought to pray when we don't even know what to pray. Oh God, who hears prayers. To you all flesh shall come. I don't know exactly what that's a reference to, but it is true enough that we can say that one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. They will either do that as a believer welcomed into God's presence or they will do that as a rebel. They will still bow the knee, but then they will depart from Christ. But this God who hears prayer, he doesn't want that for anyone. He wants, he wants to hear the prayer of the sinner like me and like you cry out to him and say, God, would you have mercy on me? Would you forgive me for my sins? Would you, would you turn me around? 
And he shows this in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Look what verse 3 doesn't say. It says, when iniquities prevail against me, all that means is when my sins overwhelm me, when my sins seem too large, when my sins just seem huge, when iniquities prevail, they win. When my sins overwhelm me, you tell me it's okay. It's not what the Bible says. You tell me it's going to be all right. Or you tell me it's not that big a deal. It's not what the Bible says. It says, when iniquities prevail against me, when my sins overwhelm me, you atone for them. You see that? The gospel is not, is not a message that the seriousness of our sin has been turned down. The gospel is a message that the mercy of God has been turned up to 11. It meets us at the point of our need. The gospel is not your sins don't matter. The gospel is your sins disqualify you. You, you have a debt that you can never pay, but God loved you so much that he paid it and even more for you. When our sins prevail against us, you atone for our transgressions. It, it, it says this, of course, again in Romans, which I tend to be going back to a, a, a number of times in Romans 5, 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Before we cleaned ourselves up, before we did any good works, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? And it says this, and this great help in, in 1 John, um, uh, 1 John chapter 1 says this, if, which, uh, which of course um, um, was just read a few moments ago. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it says this, in chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, in other words, you are going to fail. And when you do, when you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What this means is for the one who is in Christ when you fail. Of course, you don't consider Jesus' grace a license to sin. That's not what it is. Romans 6.1 says anyone who thinks that has not understood the gospel. But it says this, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Of course, our news feeds, and I'm not going to make any comments on the, on the good or bad of this, but our news feeds this week have been full of all kinds of, uh, of trials going on in courtrooms in different places in our in our country, and, and, and you look in a courtroom and you see on one side, there's a prosecutor, and you could say an accuser, and on the other side, there's a defense attorney. When our sins prevail against us, when our sins overwhelm us, we have a defense attorney with God. We have a defense attorney who isn't just simply good at making good arguments. We have a defense attorney who decided to take the punishment for us. That's the difference in the gospel. 
when iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one, in verse 4, he says, blessed is the one that you choose and, and bring near to dwell in your courts. And I suppose many comments could be made here. Of course, it makes us uncomfortable to talk about God choosing, but at least in Romans 8, it does give us this great encouragement, encouragement that God is active in our salvation and God is the one who secures us in Christ that we know because He has saved us. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from His hand. It says in, in Romans 8, 29, and following says this, and we know, verse 828, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, if we are in Christ today, it is because we have been invited into his table. We have a seat at his dinner place, and he calls us friend in the gospel. That is the amount, that is the measure of his love for you. And furthermore, if that is you, if you have turned away from your life and turned to Christ, you are secure in him. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever, can ever snatch us from his hand. But it goes on to talk about how the gospel is not just simply the plan of salvation. The gospel is more than the plan of salvation, right? The gospel is more than the Romans road. The gospel is more than just admit, believe, and confess, although it is these things. The gospel is more. The gospel is a message of God that he is working in all of creation to bring it all back, reconciled to him, and he wants to catch you up in that plan. He wants to, to, to include you in his grand plan to redeem all of creation and humanity back to himself. It says this in the second part of verse 4. Of course, when our iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our sins. Blessed is the one that you choose and bring near. And it says this, what does this produce inside of our hearts? It does something practical. The gospel is not just one little compartment on our little cafeteria, elementary school cafeteria tray. Instead, the gospel touches all of our life. We shall be satisfied, it says, with the goodness of your house. We no longer have to seek satisfaction anywhere else. And while certain... You know, classic rock groups may, may sing and sell records about how they can't get no satisfaction. We can be satisfied at the deepest level because of the, of the purity and, and the depth of the gospel. It touches every part of our life. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. In other words, the gospel doesn't simply punch our ticket to heaven. It gives us a purpose for living. It gives us a lens to, to look at all of our lives through. It says this in, actually in Psalm 103. As long as you're in Psalms, I, I'll turn there. Psalm 103 is, is perhaps one of the most beautiful explanations of the grace of Jesus. And even it shows how the gospel touches down. 
Pick up with me, uh, of course, just in, in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Psalm 103. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. I'm afraid that sometimes we think of being satisfied in God a little bit like I think about being satisfied with food, right? Yesterday, I wanted to get a burger from the American Cafe in Guthrie. They have really good burgers, by the way. I'm ashamed to say, in my short time here, I'm already on a first-name basis. <laughs> I walk in, and Eric, the cookie, is like, what's up, Bubba? What's going on, man? Like, hey, man, I hope you're making my burger today. And I, I said, Whitney, I, I texted my wife. I was outside with the kids. She was inside with the baby. I said, you know, I'm thinking about driving down to Guthrie to get a burger. Do you want anything? She says, no, that'll be, if I did that, that'll be two times today that I ate red meat. I said, well, that problem never entered my mind. <laughs> That doesn't, that's not part of my calculus, sweetie. <laughs> and she would prefer to maybe have a day where if she has something that's a little unhealthy, mix it in with something that's healthy, but not as tasty, right? I just like to have what's tasty. I'm afraid that sometimes, though, we think... We think that if we are to be satisfied in God, it'll be like eating a salad. We know we ought to, but it's really not all that good. We know we ought to come to church. We know I ought to read my Bible, but it's not really satisfying. Friends, knowing Christ the way that he intends to know us is deeply, deeply satisfying. I would encourage you to pursue him. He will not disappoint. He is in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be American Cafe burgers and they will not have any calories. That's what it's going to be like to be satisfied at the deepest level by God. And friends, today Christ intends, God intends to satisfy you with what is good so that you no longer have to be chasing the other things that used to satisfy. Says this it goes on in, in, in Psalm 103, the gospel and life. The gospel and life, they're just, they're just interwoven. They're not compartments. It says in verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. In other words, the gospel touches down. There will be one day when no longer will there be any tears on any faces because God will have set every wrong right. He will get justice in the end. You don't have to get revenge now because God will, will get better justice than you ever will. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to all the people of Israel. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. In other words, he won't always bring up your sins against you. Do you have a conscience that chides you? 
Does the enemy seek to, to chide or, or maybe you have a family member or a, or a friend or an enemy who's always kind of pointing out the fault and you do everything 99% right, but they'll find the 1% and, they, and they'll take that finger and dig it into the wound and, and twist it. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Friends, this is the love of God. This is the love of God poured out for sinners. It says this in verse 5, and, and we'll see about landing the plane at some point here. <laughs> By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. Friends, this is not just a personal Jesus gospel. This is not just a gospel for Trenton Baptist Church. This is not just a gospel for Trenton, Kentucky. It is a gospel for all the nations. It is a gospel that needs to go to the end of the earth. And I'm praying dangerous prayers for you and for your kids that there would be kids in children's church right now that God would raise up and send to the ends of the earth and that he would produce parents who would be willing to let them go so that people who do not now know Jesus will know him one day. And friends, this is our mission. The gospel, yes, it saves us. Yes, it works itself out in our lives. It touches down in our lives, but it also sends us on a mission. It says this, O God of our salvation, verse 5, He is the hope of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. We've been given this message We've been given this message not to hoard it to ourselves, but to pour all of our time and our finances and our resources and our, and our vacations and our retirement out so that others can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be changed. It tells us this in Psalm 67, the desire of God. Psalm 67, verse 3, perhaps on the same page or just the next page over. Psalm 67, 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In other words, you, God, are worthy of the praise of every tongue, of every human who has ever walked the earth. And then the clincher in verse 4. Let the nations be glad. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. The prayer of the Christian is not just that we would be saved from our sin. It is that, but it's not just that. The prayer of the Christian is not simply that we would be satisfied in our own heart. It is that, but it's not simply that. The prayer of the Christian is that we would so understand the gospel and so have the joy and the comfort of the Lord that we would desire to let the nations hear the message that has changed us. Friends, we must be on a mission so that others can hear and turn and give praise to the God who hears our prayers. Would you pray with me?
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a clear word in the Bible. I pray that today that clear word will have been set forth and will have made sense in our hearts. But Lord, more than that, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would combine the truths that we have heard with faith in our hearts so that we can, yes, experience the comfort and the joy of the Lord, that yes, we would be satisfied. We would be satisfied on the deepest level, but, but not just that we would think that our satisfaction is meant to be spent on us, but that we would be so satisfied at such a deep level that we would desire to go tell others across town and across the globe about the God who brings forgiveness, who hears prayers, and who satisfies, who satisfies the thirsty and the hungry. God, I pray that that very message would cause us to give, to pray, and to go so that our neighborhood and the nations could be changed like we have been. God, would you change us? Would you not finish your, would you not stop your work in us? Bring it to completion. We know that you will. Your word says so. God, give us what we need to follow you all of the days of our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.